Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a Mar Recovery Resources production from Mar Addiction Treatment Center. I'm Matt Shedd. Anna was a successful doctor, a 35-year-old anesthesiologist with a loving husband and two young children. Throughout her studies and into her career, she had always done well for herself. But she tells us now that underneath those outward achievements was a sense of discontent with herself. She starts off her recovery story sharing with us the crisis that brought her into treatment at Mar. It was a night where she stayed late at the office and obviously as an anesthesiologist had access to lots of very strong narcotics. And I'm just gonna leave it right there and let her tell you the story. Also, we wanted to take this opportunity before getting into Anna's story to remind you that if you or a loved one are struggling with substance abuse and you need some help and some guidance, please feel free to call our clinical assessment team. They're certified and licensed, trained clinicians, very experienced in handling these kinds of situations. They're waiting for you to call and would love to help you out with next steps. Please feel free to call at 678-805-5131. All right. Here's Anna. Could you tell us a little bit about what was going on for you when you got to Mar? Well, let's see. When I got to Mar on in July of 1998, um, about two weeks before that, I had um, accidentally done a general anesthetic on myself without any anesthesiologist being present but me, you know, and... Um, and uh, and I was unconscious, you know, and uh, I, I don't know how close to death I came. I just came to some hours later in a small office by myself and realized I was a couple of hours late for a, <clears throat> it was unusual, it was a weeknight, and it was a, my, my husband Norman was having a guest over for dinner, and I remember I called him, he said, where have you been? I, I lied and made up a story and I said I'll be right home you know I just got busy unpacking boxes it was all a lie you know I couldn't tell the truth at that time I was deeply ashamed of what I had just done and still very much under the influence of three powerful anesthetic drugs and um, I drove home in a active hallucinatory state and you know, came through the door and the juxtaposition of how I felt, you know, great relief, great shame mixed in as I came through the door and my, you know, three and four year old came up and wrapped their arms around my legs and said, mommy, mommy, you know, and then we had this dinner guest and I remember having to fake like everything was just fine, you know, um, and that was, I think, my bottom, just the juxtaposition with the, the discord between the what had just happened the inability to, to tell the truth about it and then having to fake it through this dinner. I remember what we had for dinner that night. You know, it was just a very vivid memory. And um, what'd you have for dinner? We had salmon and broccoli, mm. <laughs> you know, and um, I remember that the this was in late June, 1998, when this event happened. And in the middle of dinner, I had to go back and uh, I got nauseated and vomited back in the very back bathroom and I never throw up, you know? And I remember as, as I'm vomiting, I remember thinking like, whoa, I must be really sick. You know, as this, as if I didn't have enough clues before then, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it was shortly after that, I, um, I had already talked with Mar and decided that um, a, a couple weeks earlier, I had already talked with Mar and decided that if all they could offer me was residential inpatient, because I didn't think I was that sick, you know, that I didn't want to go. Um, and um, I had already, you know, turned them down. Um, just said, no, thanks. You know, I don't, I don't want to come into treatment. I don't think I'm that sick. I don't think I need that. And then after this near death experience, you know, I realized I've got to get help. Wow. And within, within, I can't remember, it was a week or two, you know, I was, I called work on a Monday and I said, I'm sick. I've got to, to tend to myself. And on Tuesday I entered more over at the, it was back when the women's center was over off of Ponce de Leon, East Ponce de Leon and Clark. I think it's Clarkston where it used to be. Gotcha. Wow. What a vivid uh, story that it, I mean, and it's like, it's almost cinematic the way that you laid it out there. Very well, dramatic. You asked, you asked, that no one's ever asked me the question like that before you asked, you know, what is it that brought you to Marvel? Well, it was that single event, but, but of course, you know, before then there had been strong suspicions that I might have a problem, you know, with various substances, alcohol, you know, was the first one, but, um, mm -hmm. What's, so was that, and I want to back up and get more of the history, but before that, so had you been administering your own anesthetics to yourself frequently? Was that a frequent no, thing? No, at that very, point? very, very infrequently. Mm -hmm. very, I can count, you know, on one or two hands. Um, and because it was so infrequent and because I never developed tolerance or withdrawal, um, I didn't, I just didn't think I was that bad, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and I remember my brother told me it started in the fall of 97 was the first time he did it. And after doing it once or twice, I told my brother who's in Greenville, South Carolina, and he, he was one of the first people to get the internet and he looked it up and he said, Oh, Anna, this is not, this is not good. You know, this can be fatal and you know, you need help. And I say, you know, I, I stayed at the Cromer rehab. My maiden name is Cromer, so his last name is Cromer. But he, he actually took me to my first um, couple of AA and NA meetings that week. And um, I, I didn't do it again uh, until June of, of 90, 98. That was, in, mm -hmm. that was in November, December 97. Um, I went to, you know, one week of rehab at my brother's house. <laughs> thinking that a few meetings, you know, would do it. I couldn't relate in any of the meetings. I didn't particularly like the meetings. Uh, you know, I worked the steps in my head and I thought, well, you know, I already know all that. You know, I've, I'm already done. I've already done all that. You know, I, I've, my searching and fearless moral inventory is that I'm a terrible person. I'm filled with shame. I'm going to burn in hell. What more do you want from me? You know, uh, that was, you know, so I didn't, I didn't think I needed a sponsor and I didn't think I needed to go back to these meetings. They couldn't relate to me and I couldn't relate to them. You know, I, I was keen on looking for the differences in their story. I never drank or used every day. I never had withdrawal. I never had any legal consequences. All of my consequences were existential, you know, spiritual, you know, like fundamental, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, there was that six month gap where I, I didn't, drink or use anything and then uh, you know i just i didn't have my my drug of choice um and so i just mixed together this concoction of other stuff and it was you know horrible mm -hmm. and that thank was god thank god you know 
and that you're referring to the um that night when with the dinner party and and all yeah, that it was, um, a, it was a it was a it was an af- it was an afternoon in my office we had just moved offices and so i was alone in my office unpacking boxes um no one else was there and you know i had access to all kinds of stuff as an anesthesiologist um and I just thought, well, you know, let's try this and see what happens. Um, mm-hmm. And and I realized now I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to get high. I wasn't trying to, I, I was more, you know, intellectually curious, but, you know, it took step work and the work that I did at MAR to realize, you know, just the immense pain I was in, emotional pain and, and, and the pain that I had been in, you know, for a long time. Um, and so I, uh, you know, I, you know, I wasn't looking to, you know, whoa, party at all. Yeah. Um, and and thank God, you know, it had the impact on me that it did because I, I, you know, I might not be sitting here today talking to you. In this next section, Anna talks about the effect that doing the fourth and fifth step inventory had on her perspective on life and how she viewed herself in relation to the world. It changes everything. Um, it changed my worldview, it changed the way I relate, related to others and still relate to others. Um, it increased my, my, my understanding of others. See, because when I'm judging myself that I'm a terrible person, I don't deserve to live, I'm just a lowly worm, I need to burn in hell, but in the meantime, I'm here, so let's do this, you know. Um, I, I can't help but judge you. And so in, in, in learning to really take a look at myself with a, with a most competent sponsor who had a sponsor who has a sponsor, you know, all the way back, um, it was such a relief. My favorite steps are six and seven. I, mm. call them, I call them the hinge steps because, you know, after I've uncovered and discovered and identified what it is that's driving me, um, you know, then I could look at, well, what about this? Do I need, what do I need to replace this with? So for example, I went to medical school to matter. I didn't go to medical school to help people. See, I I went because I wanted to distinguish myself because I felt insignificant. So it's actually my insignificance that had driven a lot of this hard work, never called in sick to work, well liked at work because you know Anna Anna Kelly would do it if no one else would, you know, just, you know, just going to stay late, go, go early be personable in the operating room. And um, it was all because I felt, you know, insignificant, inadequate, um, terrible about myself. I felt like the world was just a a giant hellhole, and we're all just here trying to make it through. And, you know, the steps changed everything. And um, I'm, I'm just so grateful. I don't think I could have engaged with the steps uh, you know, if I had not gone to Mar, I have a funny story about that. You know, when you go to Mar, you have to go to, you know, 12-step meetings, right? Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, well, I've already done that. It didn't help. But, okay, you know, like the whole apartment would go, and so you'd have to go with them. I tried to avoid it when I could. So I was very grateful for ARP because that meant I didn't have to go to a <laughs> an AA meeting on Tuesday or Saturday. You know, I could say, oh, I've already been to my meeting. Um but uh, I was, uh, they, they gave you this sheet to fill out, um, you know, just sort of a progress note where you had to write down, you know, what meetings you were doing and, um, you know, like either if you were working or like I mirrored over at Ridgeview. And so up at the top right hand corner, you had to write your sponsor's name. So 
within that first week, I had been told, you know, you have to get a sponsor. And I did. I got a sponsor named Candace. Uh, I met her at the 8111 club there. And I said, I like what, uh, you know, she seemed to be a reasonable, common sense person. And so I said, will you be my sponsor? She, she said, yes, I will. Here's my number. And so I took her number and stuck it in a book somewhere and never called her. Well, four months later, I'm doing my exit interview with, with Rick with Rick McCain. And he said, do you have a sponsor? And I very proudly said, yes, I do. What's her name? Candace. It's written right there on the sheet, you know. And he said, well, when's the, when's the last time you talked to her? And I said, well, let's see. It must have been about mid-July. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no, 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 that's not how it works. And I said, well, you asked me to get a sponsor. And I did. He said, no, you've got to be working with one, calling one, you know, um, and I said, oh, I, 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 you know, truly, I was kind of naive. I'm like, this is the first treatment center I've ever been to. Uh-huh. I didn't know that. You know, and that night, I mean, Candace was long gone. I don't even know if I still had her number. But I went out and uh, I went to a meeting in Swanee, Georgia, which is where we live. And I yeah. got uh, my first sponsor, a woman named Regina, who was just amazing and you know, Matthew, we say like, oh, the Mar and the 12 steps changed my life. But what I'm most grateful for is that the 12 steps changed the trajectory of my children's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hannah had just turned five. So my children were three and five when I when I entered Mar. Um, I missed a lot of their firsts. I missed Hannah's first day of kindergarten. I missed uh, they were in a wedding and they were the little flower girl and little ring bearer. And I, I missed that. Um, and I, I didn't really have anyone. Those weren't the types of issues we processed at Mar necessarily. Um, and, but I, I just, you know, kind of, you will Hardman change my life. Dave Devitt, you know, I just kind of knew and Gary dies. I just knew that if, I didn't want to do this again. I didn't want to have to come back and do this again. So yeah, you're giving up a lot now, but there was just something about Mar that just kept me putting up with all the things I didn't like about it. You know, mm-hmm. um, all the things I didn't like about it. I hear this a lot from people that like, they have that spiritual experience with the steps, but they say, you know, they needed to be in Mar for yeah. that. For and was that kind of your experience? 100%. I really don't think I'd be alive today if it weren't for Mar and the people there that took time to to listen to to you know encourage me to uh uh you know to to you know just to stand by me. Um, I I didn't realize you know we went to feeling school, I don't know if y'all still call it that, but we call it feeling, yeah, school, you know. And it, it took me years later to, to realize, you know, my, my main feeling all those years had just been anger, you know, but I covered it up because I'm a good Southern, you know, Presbyterian, you know, I covered it up with politeness and <laughs> it become authentic. Um, I, you know, I just, I had to have that, my feeling school was a little bit longer just because of some of the processes and timing of things. And so I actually did feeling school for I don't know, probably six or eight weeks. And then I spent the next two months out at Ridgeview working with some of the great guys over there, Chip and Richard, Richard Morgan, and um, just a a lot of the, you know, just great counselors there. The thing that you said about going to medical school because you wanted to matter, Mm -hmm. is that something that you kind of put together 
through doing the steps and yes, in that moment. Yeah, I didn't even recognize how insignificant I felt or what the true problem was until I did the work at Mar and the 12 steps. And then more importantly, worked with, you know, dozens of other women as their sponsor. Yeah. My sponsor got me to sponsor other women within the first few months. Um, You know, and it, let me tell you something funny about that. You know, uh, I said, you know, well, I'm not, I'm not ready to sponsor anyone. I feel like I barely even know what I'm doing. And she said, no, no, it's, it's work with others is vital to permanent recovery, you know? And uh, so I remember, I remember the first couple, you know, a sponsee would call me with an issue, you know, whether it's a family issue or, and, and I would listen and I would say, you know, well, this reminds me of something that I heard at a meeting last night, but why don't you think about what step this might be related to and call me back in an hour. And th- th- so they would say, okay. And then I would call my sponsor real quick and present. <laughs> you know. um, but the, the solution is, it, it turns out that the solution is in the steps, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's no problem that I've, I've had that I haven't found a solution to in the steps. It's just, I, I don't know if I, I just couldn't get it without Mars help though. You know, that Tuesday night group, it was from um, 5.30 to 8 on Tuesdays. There was the small doctors group and then there was the bigger professional group on Tuesday night. And then on Saturday morning from 9 to 10 was a professional group. And I, I don't think I missed, I can probably count on one hand how many I missed in the five and a half years I was monitored. Then I volunteered for another five years after that at, at Mar, and then I moved on to volunteering at Right Side Up. In the meantime, Right Side Up had, had come about, and uh, I used to go over there on uh, one of the afternoons, and boy, that was really powerful to bring that message. It was a big book study, so to bring that message out of the 1935 language, 1930s language, and like translate it into the woman's experience of suffering and redemption. It's universal. Mm-hmm. Universal. So let's go back to your how how did this all progress? Like your drinking and using history. Where when did that start? And kind of in broad strokes, I guess. How how did that progress over the years? Well, the the first drug I had access to was alcohol at the age of 14. Um, and we were from a you know fairly conservative area in Greenville, South Carolina, and my parents didn't really drink. There may have been one bottle of liquor up that stayed full for a couple decades, but, um, you know, th- they didn't really drink at all. I mean, I don't know that they were teetotalers. I, they, they probably had a handful of drinks in their entire lives, and um, but I, I remember that first drunk and the, just the great relief, you know, that I felt like I finally felt comfortable. I finally felt like I fit and belonged in the world, you know, and I, I remembered that. And even though, even though I didn't drink even that often in high school, it just wasn't that available. Pretty much every time I, I did drink, I would be the one that drank too much and even had, you know, blackouts. I actually developed when I was you know, I felt inadequate. I felt I didn't belong in. I remember one of my first dates was when I was 16 or 17. And I remember getting hammered on slow gin and woke up hours later in the hospital 
with a blood alcohol level of 350, had been in a blackout for several hours. The, the young man I was with, you know, was decent enough to say, call an ambulance. There's something that's mm-hmm. right here, you know. And uh, I remember mama was holding my hand. It had an IV in it. And the doctor walked in and said, you know, in my mind, it was judgmental. But who knows? Maybe it was just the way I was hearing it. He said, you know, you could have died last night. And that's all he said. And we left. And the worst part of that whole thing was, Matthew, we never talked about it. You know, like. It was that kind of family where no one ever said, you know, like, hey, baby, what's going on? You know, like, you know, you just never talked about it again. And so alcohol was probably the first thing. I've come to learn that early blackouts and brownouts, you know, there's a little bit of a pink flag. It's not mm. the criteria for alcohol use disorder, but it's a little, a little bit of a pink flag, you know. And then when I went to college, uh, you know, again, I've made straight A's. Uh, I didn't really plan on going to medical school until I was a junior in college, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I was just, you know, trying to make it through again. Didn't feel like I fit in. I was in the big city of Atlanta at Agnes Scott college. Um, and, uh, would reserve my drinking, you know, for Friday and Saturday nights. Um, still lots of blackouts. I woke up sometimes like not knowing where I was really, um, very dangerous. Uh, but uh, again, I couldn't talk to anyone about it because it because of the shame, you know. I just had to keep it secret, and you know, I would tell myself, "Well, like, don't drink so much next time," you know. Now, I was introduced to cocaine in my later college years, and people ask me, you know, like, "What's your what's your drug of choice, Anne?" And I say, "Well, I, I've got three, which are really the, the three the the main ones I've ever used. Again, I, I never drank or used every day, but I, I liked alcohol." because it was a great reliever, it was legal, it was socially accepted, and it was, you know, everywhere. Uh, In the town I grew up in, you didn't have alcohol at weddings and children's baptisms and funerals. And so, you know, that began to come in. I mean, you could go to a child's baptism ceremony in Atlanta and there'd be alcohol there, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I would say, like, that's appealing. You know, it's available, it's acceptable. I, I particularly like the way cocaine makes me feel. It, it actually made me feel good about myself. I I love myself when I was on cocaine, you know. And then the uh, the opioid I used was a potent opioid called fentanyl. And um, even though it only lasted very short acting, you know, it, I used small doses and only a handful of times, but it just quieted the noise in my mind for a few minutes. And it was, even though it wasn't that long lasting, it was worth it, you know. And it took me going to Mar and, and doing the feelings school and continuing to go back to group to realize just how very uncomfortable I had been my almost my entire life. Underneath that uh, uncomfortability and just really self-loathing, you know, was actually an anger. I think I we touched on that earlier, but there was this anger that, that came out in four and five and was continues to be corrected, you know, in step six and seven, those hinge steps. Um, But, you know, it it wasn't, uh, it wasn't ladylike, you know, to be so angry. So it was just so, so deeply hidden. And I'm just so grateful for, for Mar, for beginning to uncover it. And then the steps for, you know, uncovering that further one-on-one, you know, and work with my sponsor, Regina, and, and then also work with other women. It's probably more common, but I remember in four and five, which are just amazing steps of discovery. But I remember thinking like, holy moly, you know, it's, it's 
It is me. It's not the world. I, I remember, you know, like I was thinking, the world is messed up in this way and the world is messed up in that way. And can't you see how this is ridiculous and unfair and absurd, you know? And then as I did four and five and got that list of character defects, fears, and harms, I realized, oh my gosh, it's the, it's the glasses I've been wearing. It's the lens yeah. I've been viewing the world. And to have those clean just a little bit each time, you know, I went through the process again or Ewell Hardman ran a, an amazing uh, recovering professionals group. And um, I learned so much just by, you know, it was such a big group. You didn't really get to, you know, you might not even talk, but I, there's not a time I walked away from there that I, I didn't think, you know, wow, I know myself and my fellow man better, you know. That's great. Yeah. It sounds like that group had a big impact on you. It, and it did. It did. What, what was it about specifically that setting for other professionals that might be listening or thinking about going to treatment? What right. What could you say that that was helpful about that? Well, I would say the group was was you know uh, wielded by just an amazingly competent and beautiful person. That that's number one. Uh, just so skillful, you know, um, and so that that sort of, I think, was the basis of, of just looking, actually looking forward to that group every week. I would go early. The, the other thing it did is I had, I had kept myself separate from my fellow human being by distinguishing myself in various ways, you know, being a very good student, maybe, you know, what's this decent Southern girl doing being the life of the party, you know, you know, so I distinguished myself, um, kept myself separate, either felt above my fellow man or below my fellow man. And um, I thought because I was intellectually smart and a, and a very good student, I felt like that, that there's no way I could be an alcoholic addict. I was a, I'm a very responsible alcoholic and IV drug addict. And, you know, like, and so, you know, just seeing others come in, um, because remember, I was there for over 10 years. Uh, and to see others come in and to mirror off of them, to see the denial when they first come in, and then the skillful way Mar was able to break through that denial and just to tell the truth, you know. And, you know, there's something almost beyond the telling of it, uh, this concept of, of, of surrender. You know, there was just enough surrender for these transcendent messages to begin to get in there and work on my life, my life. Um, and the, and the fruits of, of the fruits of what I was learning was, you know, expressed itself early on, even though it might not have been easy, you know, it's a simple program, but it's not easy. There was still a lot of upheaval, turmoil, some, you know, some family of origin issues that needed to be worked through, but to, to, to hear my fellow physicians, um, um, to, 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 to witness that in others is, is powerful to, to experience it myself is one thing, but to witness it in others in real time, week after week after week, it was so beautiful also to have, you know, the, the, the bureaucratic arm of the medical board, it was pretty scary, you know? Mm -hmm. And, but I didn't, at first I thought, I don't, I don't care what I have to give up. I don't want to live like this anymore. But after being at Mar for several months, you know, I thought, no, I've worked hard. I paid for my college. I paid for my medical school. I worked a hundred hours a week down at Grady. I wasn't going to just walk away from this. And, um, this is before we had a, 
a physician's health program, you know, this is back in the late nineties, uh, you know, uh, the, the more professional program and you in particular, you know, held my hand through that. There's a lot that was unknown. Um, you know, the, the bureaucratic wheels, you know, turn very, very slowly. And uh, I just, I learned to be patient and, you know, all in, uh, it, it wasn't up to me. And mm-hmm. in some ways that was a great relief, you know. Uh, yeah. And just when you, when you were just sharing that, that really hit home for me. Cause I, yeah, I can't imagine having to go through that scary ordeal on your own, you know, of like, I might, you know, my license is suspended or, you know, like all that uncertainty and not having, I mean, well, one, just the logis- people with the logistical know-how to like help you navigate that whole process is I'm sure a huge relief. But then on top of that, people to talk to yeah. about the emotions and other people that are going through the same thing to to help relieve some of that shame and yeah. all the things that we do to ourselves um yeah it just yeah. it really hit home when you were just describing that how yes. i i can't really imagine going through that process just in general but particularly by by oneself it just be crushing i imagine yeah, I, I, I felt supported. Now, I found out later, I went and did a, uh, so I stayed in Atlanta for a long time in, in my own practice. And uh, in 2016, I went to Walter Reed out, right outside of D.C. And, um, and, and worked on their integrated medicine team in the Warrior Clinic. And um, one of my colleagues there, Laura, was, you know, was, was doing cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. And I said, you know, I was told that I had CBT when I was at Mar from, from Dave, you know, and I said, but it didn't really seem like therapy. It just seemed more like talking kind of like you and I are talking right now. And she said, yeah, a talented CBT therapist. It just is like a normal conversation, but you know, Dave was, and you will, you know, they were able to challenge my ideas and, you know, and, and, you know, just some, some, some generational things that needed to be unrooted and, and resolved or, or reframed, you know, came out. And I just, I, I can't, it's almost, you know, like to say I'm grateful almost seems ridiculous, but it's, it's too small a word. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. My children, uh, my AA birthday or NA birthday, you know, my seller, my sobriety date is July 7th, 1998, but my belly button birthday is July 10th. But my, my, my children, um, since I live in Wisconsin and they're still in Atlanta, they text me uh, on my AA birthday and they try to put into words what my, remember they were three and five when I got in recovery and kind of wish I'd saved them. You know, the texts, they kind of go away because they get filled up with other texts, but they, 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 they always acknowledge how grateful they are that, um, for my recovery work and, and for Mar, you know, I remember one of my more painful memories uh, back when, when I was using, you know, sometimes I would do cocaine on a Friday night and uh, of course the kids were home. So I'm like, well, get them into bed. You know, they, they we were on a strict schedule, you know, uh, seven, seven thirty wouldn't be an unusual bedtime for young children, you know, and, um, and, uh, you know, and that way I could have the whole night to myself, you know, doing this cocaine. And I remember, you know, there's a bedtime routine. You know, you played, you read a book, you brought, you played, you know, you had a snack, then you played a little bit, then you brushed your teeth, then you 
read a story and, and, and went to bed, you know, and I remember, um, I remember inside, you know, I was thinking, you know, hurry up and go to sleep. You know, um, I need to, to get to what I need, which mm-hmm. is the relief that the relief that I got from various, you know, drugs, you know, and alcohol and that fake playing with my own children Mm. was something that when I faced it, you know, when I faced the truth of it and just said, yes, I did that. And I don't want to ever have to fake play with anybody again, Mm. particularly my own children, you know, um, you know, at the beginning of the, uh, 12 steps and 12 traditions, it says that, the 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, that when lived as a way of life, enable the sufferer, it says we're sufferers, to be happily and usefully whole. And, and, and I can honestly say, you know, I, I felt whole for the first time in my life uh, that when I came tomorrow and when I kept coming back tomorrow for, for the 10 years and then volunteering after that. Um, and, and as I worked in the 12 steps with my sponsor and then, I don't know, I've had like 60 or 80 sponsees over the years. And there's, I never talked with another woman taking her through the steps that I wasn't really talking to myself, reminding myself, mm. you know, reminding mm. myself of what I used to be like, what happened, what I'm like now, or occasionally reminding myself, you know, hey, Anna, you need to work on this. You know? Right, right. Uh, you know, hey, by the way, shout out to Al-Anon. I was about yeah. 10 years sober. Uh, and by this time, my first sponsor had moved to California. And so Giggy there at, at Mar, Giggy Barnes. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I just, I didn't necessarily need a sponsor with more time than me, but I wanted someone who knew a lot about the steps because that's, you know, that was Regina had, I was, you know, traditional big book, Step work, that's what you did. And so Giggy hooked me up with a, a, a woman named Paula, who's still my sponsor. But uh, I remember she said to me, after working with me for a couple of years, she said to me, you know, Anna, if, if you don't go to Al-Anon, I can't sponsor you anymore. And I'm, I'm thinking like, well, I don't think I need Al-Anon. I mean, really nobody in my life was drinking and I certainly wasn't being impacted by someone's drinking or using in any kind of real sense. Uh, but I realized you know, through my Al-Anon work, um, just how very fearful I was. And that led to a need to control, a need to control outcomes, you know. And so the 12 steps of Al-Anon, which are the same as the 12 steps of AA, but just work slightly differently. And the meetings are, you know, slightly mm-hmm. different. Um, I, I learned to just do the next right thing and just let go of the outcome, you know. And that, of course, you learn that in the 12 steps, but Al-Anon really drove that home that it wasn't up to me to fix the world. And it really wasn't even up to me to fix myself because for that, you need a power greater than yourself, you know? Yeah. If I could have fixed myself, I would have already done it without having to go to more all those years and AA all those years, you know? And so, right. uh, so you know, big shout out to, to, to Al-Anon. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's, I love hearing this too from, like, you know, you're, you're a doctor, so you, you've read some books before yes. <laughs> you read a few books, but there's something powerful about what, you know, the emotional risk that you have to take in these programs. It, it's learning on a, on a different level, you know, that I, I just. Oh yeah. Funny story about that. There was a, there was a, 
I was seeing Dr. Chuck Bancroft in, in Gainesville, just as count as a counselor, you know, and he was the first one I let just let know a little bit about what, what I was uh, doing is what my relationship with alcohol. I didn't tell him about mm-hmm. the cocaine and I certainly didn't tell him about the anesthesia drugs, but he, he was the first one to, to recognize. I've got a funny story about something he said to me that changed everything, but I remember he, he got Nancy Keating on the phone and of course, I was invested in letting her know, you know, hey, I'm I'm really not that bad. I'm a very responsible alcoholic and not a big drug addict, you know. Uh, but I've only done that a few times, so I don't really think that's a big deal, you know. And uh, and I said, you know, plus I'm reading all these. I've read, you know, Healing the Shame that Binds You, and I've read the AA Big Book, and uh-huh. you know, six or eight other books. And she said, well, you know, you can't you can't find recovery in a book, Anna. And I'm and I'm inside my head, I said. I can, you know, <laughs> you know, but shortly after that, I had this near death experience, but I do need to say this, you know, cause like we all get to more in different ways, but, um, I was in marriage counseling with Norm seeing Dr. Chuck Bancroft, uh, who by the way, spoke at Norm's funeral in 2017. It's beautiful. You know, just had come it, you know, just to realize 20 years later here, here, Norm and Dr. Bancroft and I are all t- together, you know, at his funeral. It was really beautiful. Um, but he said, uh, he talked kind of country like this, you know, and he said, uh, he had asked me about my drinking. And I said, well, I don't, you know, I don't really drink that much. I drink on the weekends, you know, occasionally I'll have one on Thursday night, but I, I usually reserve my drinking for for Friday and Saturday. And he said, well, well, why is that? And I said, well, I get up at 4 or 4.30 to go do anesthesia and then he asked me a few other questions have you ever drank too much and have you ever had a blackout or a brownout and, um, of course you know Norman drank too and he said uh, he just made a declaration one day he said you know Anna I think you're an alcoholic <laughs> you know and I said you know me you know I'm not an alcoholic you know and sort of pointed the finger you know he drinks more than I do and he said no he said it's not about how much you drink or how often he said it's you know it's why you do in the first place and what happens when you do he said see you're not you're not, uh, you're not neutral on alcohol. And, you know, I said, what do you, what do you mean by that? And he said, uh, I remember he asked me, he said, do you like Brussels sprouts? And I said, you know, yeah, I like Brussels sprouts. What's, what's the point? You know? And he said, do you ever say to yourself, it's not five o'clock. I can't have a Brussels sprout. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, like, it's not a Friday. I can't eat Brussels sprouts. And I said, well, no, of course not. That would be ridiculous. And he said, see, you're neutral on Brussels sprouts, <laughs> you know. And that was when he first, you know, began to suggest that I, I had a problem with alcohol. And then I, I said, oh, my God, this is terrible. You know, like how irresponsible of me to have allowed myself to become an alcoholic. And uh, so I just stopped. I didn't drink. And that was when the existential pain got so, so immensely worse. That's when I first picked up the drug in the OR, just, you know, just reeling in pain and not being able to. And from the outside, because everything looked so good from the outside, I definitely couldn't tell anybody. And so that was when that was, see, the not the stopping drinking and not fixing what was really broken, i.e. not working the steps, not going to Mar to begin to explore some of the reasons that I drank. Um, the pain, the existential pain got worse and that just made it all, you know, one day I remember a colleague who was in recovery had told me 
well, whatever you do, don't ever do, you know, this drug because it'll hook you immediately. And I thought, yeah, I'm too smart for that. I already know that. And so I'll just try it this once, you know, and I just remember just the, the world went quiet. I felt comfortable for a few minutes, just immense relief. And uh, that, you know, I repeated it, oh, I don't know, five or six more times, but, you know, before I went to Mar in, in July of 1998. I want to say something about God. Uh, I had been raised in the Presbyterian church. And, you know, so when I'm reading the steps and, you know, God is, is mentioned in there, uh, you know, I thought, oh, no, another church, you know, telling me what to do and how to live. And that's never helped. You know, I mean, I've been I was 35 when I got in recovery and I thought, I already know all that. You know, I've already heard all that all my life. It hasn't helped. And, um, you know, since then, I've, I've just come to develop a, a, a much broader and deeper, you know, ideas about God. I've been privileged to work with some atheist and agnostic women. And I've found that there's almost nothing better than the big book for talking about these ideas. There's that line, you were talking about favorite lines in the AA big book, mm-hmm. line in the big book that says, um, is, Two times, uh, it says, one time it says, uh, deep down inside of every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. You know, like the idea of God. And then this is something I didn't discover till I was eight or 10 years sober. It's in the, it's in appendix two, the spiritual experience, but it says something like, it says something like, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource that they presently identify as a power greater than, than than themselves, you know. And I was thinking, like, you know, the idea of that God within, that spirit within, that God isn't only out there in the sky on the cloud looking down on me and judging me, you know, but He's actually, He's 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 everywhere, you know, including inside my own heart and mind. And uh, that's radical, you know. That's radical, uh, or at least for me, it was. So my last question is, if you could pass on one thing to people that are listening, what would it be? Oh, you know, that's so hard to answer, Matthew, because it's like before I was ready to get in recovery, you know, nothing could make me. Nobody could say anything to me, you know. And then but when I was ready, nothing could stop me, you know, nothing could stop me. And I don't know. I think that might be a higher power thing or a God thing. Um, so I, I don't have a pat answer for you there. Um, I, I would say, you know, William White says there's five key ingredients to a successful recovery program. One is having a, a mentor or a sponsor, or someone where you can tell the truth, you know. And then the second thing is finding a, a fellowship of people with a common purpose. And so for me, you know, that's AA, but it might be something else. For, for another person. Um, and then the third thing is just have a method, you know, to turn that spotlight inward. And like, I mean, I think any of us don't have a hard time listing out 20 things that could change in the world and it would be a better place. But turning that spotlight inward and saying, well, where do I need to change? <laughs> and then working with others, service to others. And then just for me, having a daily, you know, prayer, yoga, meditation. I became a Kundalini yoga teacher and that's been very, very powerful. Just having a daily sort of disciplined thing that represents that which is most precious, which is, you know, life itself. And so I don't really have, you know, one thing. That was five things, you know. (laughs) I like it, though. (laughs) Five good things. Yeah. 
thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. I mean, I just enjoy getting to talk with you. And yeah, talk. it was yeah. really, really a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for this episode of Stories of Recovery. And once again, just a quick reminder, if you or someone you love needs help and you don't know what to do right now, don't hesitate. Please pick up the phone. Call our clinical assessment team at 678-805-5131. All conversations with our clinical assessment team are completely free and completely confidential. Thanks so much for joining us at Stories of Recovery. We're already looking forward to next time.